Welcome to the Skillset Podcast, brought to you by the School of Information Science at the University of South Carolina and Publishers Weekly. I'm David Lankus, Professor and Director of the School. Jenny Marie Duran is the Assistant Vice Chancellor and System-Wide Affirmative Action Officer for the State University of New York, or SUNY. Duran has significant experience in affirmative action, equal employment opportunity, Americans with Disabilities Act, diversity management, as well as policy and law. The crux of her work has been diversity and equity compliance guidance to campuses and higher education. Duran is also a librarian and firmly believes in the power of information and storytelling. This podcast is part of our Collective Care series. Okay, welcome. And today we are joined by Jenny Marie Duran, who works at SUNY, State University of New York System. Welcome, Jenny. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Dr. Cook. Absolutely. So can you start by telling us a little bit about your journey, uh, including the work that you're doing now at SUNY, how it relates to diversity, and just give us a little bit about your background and journey. Um, Okay. Well, my journey to diversity, you know, as a woman of color, uh, indigenous Chicana, from Arizona, I, you know, I've always had lived the journey of diversity, being a diverse, you know, a person, being a person of color. Um, And so I, you know, my journey started even just at a very young age, you know, I'm the first uh, and only of seven in my family to go to college. Um, And then I went to law school. So I'm a graduate of SUNY law school. And always throughout my entire life, you know, I have seen unfairness. My father was a custodian and um, my mother, you know, worked at home and worked in her own right, (laughs) taking care of us five children. But so diversity was always at the forefront in my mind, people being treated differently based on, you know, either their socioeconomic status or, or, or of course their race or, um, different abilities and so my journey started as as a very young girl and then after law school I was like okay I speak Spanish I have a law degree I need to go help people (laughs) and so I moved you know I drove my beat up pickup truck across uh, from New York to California and just started temping and one in my desire was to work and has always been to work with underrepresented populations. So I worked um, representing homeless individuals on Skid Row in Los Angeles. And then I oversaw a project called the Peace of Mind Project where I uh, worked with women of color um, and, and mostly Spanish speaking women, Latino women, um, and these women were uh, uh, dying, and I say dying because they were in hospice of AIDS or cancer, and I did the paperwork to make sure that their uh, their wishes, it was called the Peace of Mind Program, their wishes, you know, came, were um, fulfilled in making sure that their children went to people that they chose. 
And then after that, you know, in, in my journeys, which literally has been a journey of DEI, I represented migrant farm workers in Colorado, um, and I was a tribal lawyer. And then I officially, you know, officially <laughs> started doing DEI work when I worked at the uh, Northern Arizona University, whereby I started my journey as being an EEO investigator handling complaints of discrimination and harassment. And so, again, my journey, personal journey in doing diversity work, you know, has been my entire life. But the, where it has been recognized as official DEI work, <laughs> you know, compliance-based DEI work started when I was uh, started at Northern Arizona University in my hometown. And then after that, I worked for the State Department in their uh, diversity office in DC, and and then I worked for um, University of Illinois, and now I'm at SUNY, where I offer compliance and guidance on DEI legal issues um, to our 64 campuses. So that's kind of my journey where I'm at, you know, constantly growing, constantly, you know, it the scene has changed in the DEI world. You know, now it's like the soup du jour for everybody to be doing DEI work, right? Um, I also must say, though, because I know there's a lot of librarians listening, I got my master's in library information science at U of I, and I had always wanted to do that. I had always, so I'm really thrilled um, that I was able to, Get that degree because it's helped me so much in the work I do now. Oh my, I mean, so much in how I see things, categorize things, look at things. Um, so yeah, long-winded answer, but that's kind of my journey. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm hearing two things, and you mentioned uh, one specifically that diversity, equity, inclusion is kind of like the flavor of the day now. Um, but mm -hmm. you've been doing this work for decades, right? So for yeah. you, the work is not trending. And then what I'm also hearing in your story is that your work has always been in service of others. So with that in mind, talk to me a little bit about how you feel about this notion of self-care, right? We're in a time with um, a particular confluence of crises. We've got, you know, economic downturn, we've got COVID, we've got racial unrest, and, and people are going through a lot and having, you know, anxiety, stress at levels that we've not seen before. And kind of the knee-jerk reaction is, oh, just go get some self-care, take care of yourself, read a book, have some coffee, take a bubble bath. And, you know, and, and so I'm interested in your feelings about that because I'm not always sure that self-care is enough uh, given the world that we're currently living in? Well, anything that has the word self in it um, makes me cringe, <laughs> quite frankly, um, because I literally try to live my life, though I'm not perfect in doing this, with a community lens, right? There is, we cannot take care of ourselves without first taking care of our community. You know, and so, and it's a very, like, from my perspective, it's a very privileged word. It's a very, like, 
very privileged concept to, you know, have self-care at a time of crisis when there's so much going on and so much, so many people that need healing. So there's so much going on that to be looking at yourself to me is, is not, um, admirable <laughs> for me, you know, personally, I just, I just can't, I can't go and read a book about, you know, social justice or take a bath or without thinking of, you know, people who are affected by the populations that are being affected by COVID. Yeah. I can't take a bath and just like wash away like all the trauma, you know, I, you, I can't read about social justice. I need to be doing something. Though, you know, during right during these times, we have to social distance and be very careful. There are still things that we can do for our community that um, you can be done, be, that you could do virtually or in other ways. So I don't subscribe to this self self-care again just like DEI work is like the soup du jour self-care is like the appetizer du jour of the whole <laughs> I love that so given your perspective on self-care just a, a quick follow-up question what do you do uh, to manage your own anxiety or stress or fear or anger or anything, you know, that comes out, you know, when you're faced with these different uh, inequities, uh, whether it's in your own organization, your own life or in the world in general, what do you, how do you cope? Well, maybe we'll put it that way. Um, you know, I have been doing a lot of just many virtual events with, you know, some of my girlfriends of color, where we talk about, we just openly talk about you know, whatever, whatever's on our minds, you know, I'm doing a single moms yoga group virtually and it's women from all over the country and even Canada and some parts of Latin America that has helped, but it always is like a community bringing people together, you know, and just like talking about and, and also letting people talk about what it is that they're experiencing. Cause for some people, COVID is great because they get a work from home and, you know, they're not the rat race of, you know, just running everywhere. You know, it, it's been good. It's been a time for them to just set, step back a little bit. You know, for others, it causes a lot of anxiety. You know, I've been, I've been also li myself listening to a lot of podcasts about healing justice and like, and, and, and that's what I do is just really try to still reach out, check in. And it allows me to check in easier virtually with friends that I have in other countries and on the other coast. I'm on the East Coast right now in a very um, manageable way. And so that's what I do. And, you know, just again, it's always me just connecting with other people. I guess that's my the way that I care for myself, which in turn cares for my community. Gotcha. Can you talk a little bit about healing justice? Yeah. So, you know, I've been working, I, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about, you know, 
healing justice because I myself have had a couple of losses, major losses in the last year. And this concept of, you know, people of color allowing themselves time to heal and heal in ways that our ancestors healed, whether it's with, you know, herbal remedies, certain teas, certain um, rituals, and doing that as a community. And, and really, I've been doing a lot of work with like ancestral things that I've uncovered, um, cooking foods, healing through cooking, healing through certain, certain you know, rituals burning certain things whether it's sage or sweetgrass or and um and talking about healing in as a community these podcasts and either even some of the women that i talked to the girlfriends that i just got healing in a way that is um acceptable to you like i said for me the whole like bath and you know that but for me having women come together women of color and other women just come together and just talk about things that they need to heal from and empowering it and 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 speaking to it in a way that kind of counters the narrative of be you know grinding working you know 6 a.m to 10 p.m like countering the normative <laughs> traditional ways of what we have seen historically as you know being professional or being you know in a box um, countering that with some of the the things that that we discuss yeah no i love that and i love just the idea of even terming it healing justice and it's, you know, I'm taking from what you're saying that this idea of collective care is number one, social justice, um, but number two, it is also uh, maybe customizable is not the right word, but to your point, you said everyone has to do it in a way that works for them, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, when we talk about EDI and social justice and, and now this idea of self-care, uh, it seems to be there's only one way to do it. And then people feel like if they're not doing it that way, that they're not really accomplishing something. Um, but as you're describing, you know, everything is is uh, somewhat personal, uh, but you have to do it in a way that m- maintains your own integrity uh, and your own comfort while still being able to communicate with others. Yeah, and also sharing. We share some of the things that we are discovering helps us as a community. And the other thing is, like you said, the DEI world is transforming and changing, right? Historically, because I have done this work for, you know, decades, historically DEI work was all compliance-based, right? And so it's like, you know, did you meet this standard, you know, the affirmative action guidelines under the OFCCP? Did you checklist of things? Whereas now there's an overlay in DEI work of not only compliance, but an overlay of 
looking at individuals as individuals, as human, being inclusive in your mentality and how you apply the compliance component. You know, I did a webinar yesterday on gender, the Gender Expression Non-Discrimination Act. And so it's regarding, you know, preferred names and genders that people want to use and respecting that. And there's certain things, guidelines and compliance checklists that we have to meet, but we also have to be cognizant, be open, and true inclusivity work is being inclusive, knowing we're going to make mistakes at times, but being inclusive and open to, you know, the work of equity and diversity work at large. Yeah, yeah. And what I was thinking about, I think it's really important what you were just saying, that diversity DEI work is not a checklist and that essentially we're supposed to be looking at people holistically. And the one thing that stood out to me based on uh, what you were talking about your webinar yesterday about pronouns and and things of that is that part of the DEI work is that it changes um, and the language changes and the statutes and the standards change. And I think sometimes people get really caught up in you didn't use the right word. And it's like, but let's look at this holistically that the language has changed rapidly in the last five to 10 years. And how about extending grace to one another? Because you know, I know we talk a lot about intention versus impact, but you know, if I, if we're talking about the larger issue that is to help, let's not get caught up in such minute uh, details that we lose essentially, you know, the forest for the tree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now uh, at SUNY as a, a DEI compliance officer and you know, how that fits into this idea of collective care, uh, perhaps how what you've learned as a librarian uh, fits into this work. So tell me a little bit about uh, your current path. Um, Okay, so right, yeah, right now, you know, as you say, I'm the Assistant Vice Chancellor and SUNY-wide Affirmative Action Officer. So Technically, you know, I'm responsible for giving guidance to our 64 campuses, so many campuses. So in my mind, right, the library degree helps so much because I'm thinking, okay, how do I get, they, and everybody has, every campus has their own, you know, affirmative action officer, chief diversity officer. And so my role is kind of creating, I, I see my role, a community amongst the DEI professionals to come together and look at compliance. Like I literally am starting to create kind of like a DEI compliance library, if you will, um, to look at so that people know what compliance guidelines they need to abide by. But also like this webinar yesterday, I have webinars, monthly webinars with subject matter experts, or some of them I, I oversee, you know, is t- there are some areas that I have expertise in, so that people can openly talk, ask questions about compliance, but other questions of, about how some of these issues come in up in their campuses. 
And so we, I do check-ins. And, you know, as a collective care, check-ins with the affirmative action officers. And, you know, how are you doing? They all have my personal cell phone. Um, you know, just we have to, as a community, come together. Because one of the things that was hardest for me when I was actually doing investigations, right now I mostly do guidance, was when a case maybe didn't meet the legal standard of discrimination or harassment, sexual harassment or any, the legal standard, because the standard, right, is so high. But I knew that the person maybe was being treated poorly or, you know, something was happening, but you couldn't show that on the compliance level, the standard had been reached. So we have conversations about that too. You know, how do you talk to someone? What what do you do when that situation happens? How do you still, you know, because you're, you're required to be a neutral fact finder, but everybody still involved is human. You know, even, you know, so how do you really navigate the compliance component? And like we discussed, kind of going back to what we discussed before, the hum, human component. And make sure that, you know, all of that is looked at in the DEI community. So collectively, again, I just, my way is just reaching out and doing check-ins and offering these webinars so that individuals don't have to know everything about everything, science world of DEI. But also so we can, we create a community, right? So we have created a community of DEI, you know, professionals across SUNY campus to check in. We'll return to our interview in just a moment. First, I'd like to tell you about our sponsor for the podcast, the School of Information Science at the University of South Carolina. Interested in librarianship? Then join a nationally ranked program with over a quarter century of experience educating leaders in the field online. From the State Library of Vermont to San Francisco to the Business Library of Oxford University, our graduates lead in schools, cities, and states around the U.S. and beyond. Now, let's get back to our interview. Yeah, that's really important. And you know, just thinking about having been on the opposite end of the complaint and, you know, having been told, you know, you can't sue or your complaint doesn't stand up, um, it's hard, right? So, it, you know, I think you're doing really important work trying to infuse and maintain that human element into a field that is, like you said, it's, it's really about checklists, right? And, you know, legal compliance is, is very, very different. Right. So to kind of bring the two together, I think is really important. Yeah. And for me, what's been really hard is, right, I'm a social activist at heart. I've done social activism, you know, grassroots work for a lot of my life. But then now I also am a neutral fact finder. So I, finding that balance, because I have to be neutral, because there is the other party also that maybe has been accused of something. And you have to be neutral because sometimes, you know, there are situations where by you could, you know, somebody could be accused of something and, and being really neutral. 
but also having that social activist heart, you know, being making sure that I'm measured and neutral and and humane to everybody involved. Um, but really, um, really doing that in a very measured way. And as you say, DEI, the DEI world is transforming, right? There's so many right now. I have gotten so many calls from people who have said, you know, there's the job announcement. What do I need to know in a nutshell about DEI for this interview? And it, it's not that easy. It's a very nuanced, changing world. Um, you know, as I said, my library degree has helped me immensely in my job now because I've even used one of your Dr. Cook's um, lip guides as a resource to our campuses, all of our, you know, so resource connecting resources to people and communities so they have this support. That's another way I think that I, we practice um, collective care is providing people with resources to learn more, know more, be more, you know, in light of all of the different things that have happened this last year and before, but this year even more, it's become more glaring and more important, I feel like, yes. than ever. So you, you mentioned social activist heart, and I think that is uh, the key to uh, some of this work, a lot of this work. And I think that might be something that people don't understand. Um, you know, sometimes people are doing this work because they think they should or because they think they have to, and it becomes infinitely more difficult and ultimately not very successful because they don't have that social activist heart. So if someone were to ask you, how do I get that social activist heart? What does that mean? Uh, what would you tell them? Um, I would tell them, you know, okay, I, I, you know, here's the interesting thing. You know, my father passed on last year. My father was, my life. I mean, that sounds extreme and dramatic, but I mean, he's a very important person to me. Yes. And the thing that he would always say, and I, I now repeat it, I'm turning into him <laughs> in my older age, <laughs> is, you know, I do not want to leave this earth having had somebody say that I cheated them, you know, out of money or just cheated, you know, this was his word, I, I cheated them. I hurt them, you know, with intent, because, you know, we all can sometimes hurt someone or their feelings and not know. Cheat them or hurt them or do anything, you know, when I die, that someone can talk really badly against me. You know, there will be people who don't like me. or And so with an activist heart, I don't want to leave, for me, I don't want to leave this earth not having known I didn't make some positive change. Mm -hmm. Right? So somebody who says they want that heart there is something i feel i feel like in everybody's heart that they feel passionately about whether it's animal rights whether it's the environment whether it's children's rights whether it's elderly rights whether it's issues of you know anti-racism or generally speaking people want good things 
for other people. I think that, generally speaking, right? And so you have to find what it is that connects you to whatever kind of activism you want to do. Because then all of those are created, I mean connected. Mm -hmm. So, you know, environmental rights is connected to race rights, you know, anti-racism, right? Naturally, when you think of, you know, climate change and you think of what it's doing to some of the, to different countries or what it's doing to our own country and, when you, you know, food security. I mean, there's there's rights, you know, there's areas that everybody, I think, possesses that they feel passionately about. And so finding that and make leaving this earth with your legacy, knowing you've made some change positively in whatever area of rights or activism in which you find passion would be my advice to someone if they asked me. That's lovely. So before I ask you the last uh, question for our conversation, is there anything that you would like to tell our listening audience about that I uh, haven't already asked you or that we haven't touched upon in our conversation? Mm, that I think you're amazing because <laughs> you were my professor in the MLIS program. I, I need to put that in there. <laughs> um, and also, um, you know, this is hard work. Just, you know, and it it's hard work. And also, it's not work that someone can just learn in a nutshell way, right? It's not just, I'm going to go do DEI work. You know, there, there is no such thing. You have to live it and be it and you'll make mistakes i mean i've made mistakes in the years i know for sure and maybe this different you know no we need to be humble mm -hmm. and be also uh, because i also know for me um i'm getting better at this historically i was like really hardcore you know you know as an indigenous person if you said happy thanksgiving i would just go you know i would go off <laughs> so you know no it's native american genocide day no you know and i'm i'm learning a little bit to be more um forgiving mm. and not maybe that's not there but you know if if we really want to do this work we also have to you know allow for there to be space to be open and have honest discussions about this work um and i'm trying really hard to you know not be, be as like <laughs> I, um as strict when some when i feel somebody maybe says something that i don't agree with her um but we have to i think everyone has to be humble and also be open and forgiving and allow people to make the mistakes and to learn, to really make progression in this area. Because I think there's a big fear also that people are gonna say or do or be, you know, doing things wrongly or in a wrong way and will maybe offend individuals in the D that are doing 
DEI work or just individuals in general. And, and then that prevents their from being more movement. Absolutely. And it reminds me of what we spoke about um, essentially allowing people grace and right. Yes. And, you know, I think your point's very valuable because if people are so harshly and overly criticized for their mistakes as they're learning, they'll stop doing the work. And so to your Mm -hmm. entire conversation about connecting and caring for the community, to an extent, we have to help each other um, get up to speed, if you will, uh, so we can do the work together. Yeah, and you eloquently put exactly what I was trying to articulate <laughs> into three words, you know, or two words, allowing for there to be grace, right? Allowing grace. So I think, you know, on that, that point, you know, staying humble and allowing grace are like, would be like the two biggest things that I think need to be considered as we all move ahead in trying to do this work and making change, you know, in a positive way forward. Mm -hmm. All right, so my last question is, what gives you hope? Um, what gives me hope? My children and their friends, right? So I love that my children, you know, they, they're hopefully, I mean, I, I see hope. They're being raised in a world where, you know, now people are trying more and seeing more. You know, I, I think the thing about COVID you know, as hard as it has been for people, I think it also has really made people look and see whether it's in media, on TV, wherever, you know, what's happening in terms of race relations, what's happening. And I specifically talk about race because that's the DEI world. You know, what is happening? Nobody can have the excuse of like, oh, I was too busy. I didn't see that on the news or I didn't see that on social media. You know, it is in your face and people cannot make the excuse anymore that they don't know what's happening or what's going on. Right. And so I, and like I said, I feel like people are more good than they are bad. And so they, those terms being very subjective, but people want to see change. Some people want to see change. I should maybe not talk about the election results. So so, so now that I'm like rethinking that, but you know, the people who do want to see change, then the younger generations are seeing that change is happening also just by the mere fact that even more people of color are getting degrees. There's more people of color that are professors, librarians, you know, not at a huge rate, but there's hope that it is increasing, even if just in small increments, it is increasing, right? And so I do have hope when I see the younger generation, and like I said, I see my children, you know, have conversations um, 
that are just where their world is very different than my world growing up in rural Arizona. You know, their world is filled with all kinds of diversity, whether it's racial, whether it's, you know, they have friends that are volatile abilities, they have friends, you know, that are in same sex little relationships. I say little because they're young, but, you know, and it's to them, everything is like open and 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 they're really um yeah they talk about things more openly and are and are understanding and are being taught like i said by more diverse teachers and and so that that's what gives me hope perfect thank you Thank you so much for joining me today. I've really, really loved our conversation and I am so grateful for the work that you do and the expertise that you are bringing uh, to the DEI uh, sphere uh, with your legal and uh, library expertise. I think it's an amazing combination and uh, I'm sure SUNY is as grateful as I am for the work that you're doing. So thank you for joining me today. No, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm super honored that you decided to talk to me and um, have a beautiful afternoon.